I'd like to pray real quick before we get started. Father in heaven, we um, come into your presence as broken and fallen men and women who desperately need grace. And so I pray that the spirit in which I preach this passage and um, the tone of, of this message would be matching what your Holy Spirit desires and that we would rejoice and celebrate the deep, deep love of you, our Father, and the grace that you extend to us through Jesus Christ. And I hope that we can see very clearly the supremacy of Jesus Christ In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Well, on Wednesday, I went to a blog that was titled The Positivity Blog, and the subtitle of the blog says, Happiness and Awesomeness Tips That Work in Real Life. That's interesting. The site has over 400,000 visitors per month. Glenn Alsop wrote one of the posts, and this is what the post was entitled, Five Things to Remain Positive About when all hope is gone. So Glenn thinks that these five things, when all hope is gone, these five things are going to help you stay positive. Number one, your health. Glenn said, quote, there's no greater achievement than the gift of life. What does that even mean? I'm not even sure what he means by that. Health, uh, no doubt, is a blessing, but isn't health uncertain? It's not guaranteed can, can you be hopeful if you're not healthy and you're sick? All right, number two, there's always tomorrow. Glenn said, quote, there's always tomorrow is not just a wishful thinking mindset. It's a fact, he says. Is it? Uh, God said, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. The reality is tomorrow may not be there for you. Number three. Your potential. Glenn said, quote, you have the potential to be anyone and do anything you want. That is baloney. That is baloney. That's completely ridiculous. That's not true. Uh, God says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Number four, things could be worse. Well, There's always something to be thankful for. Amen? Always something to be thankful for. But this is not a sustainable hope because maybe tomorrow will be a lot worse than today. So thinking, okay, things could be worse doesn't work when things are already really, really bad. Number five, you'll come out stronger. Glenn wrote... Be thankful for the challenges you have right now because on the other end is a new you with a lot more strength than the old one. Now, I actually believe that if you have faith in Christ because God uses affliction to produce endurance and character and hope in us because he loves us, but swaths of people go through hardship only uh, to become more bitter and more calloused and hopeless. Affliction by itself does not produce strength or growth in anyone. The reality is these are humanistic points. They're not awesome. And they don't work in real life because Christ is not at the center. You cannot create reality by positive thinking. 
And positive thinking is inadequate to provide genuine hope in affliction. But there is an unshakable foundation upon which all hope is built. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ is the only hope when all hope is gone. We're going to see two things continue out in this uh, really spectacular narrative. The first one, the extravagant love of God. We're going to keep seeing the extravagant love of God. And number two, that God is more loving to manifest his glory to you through affliction than to merely give you temporal and temporary safety and comfort. Jesus is more than an awesome tip. He's awesome truth. There's always hope even when you can't see it. There's always hope even when you can't see it. It was a sorrowful scene when Lazarus died. Jesus came into that scene after making the trek from Bethany across the Jordan to Bethany, which was 1.7 approximately miles away from Jerusalem. Bethany is the modern-day Arab town El Azariah, which interestingly is Arabic for a place of Lazarus. So the town uh, is still associated with Lazarus around 2,000 years later. Additionally, back in 1873, there was uh, a fascinating discovery. Some ossuaries or bone vaults found near Bethany with the names Mary, Martha, and Lazarus inscribed on them. Could it be? Well, we don't know. We don't know for sure, but it does prove the historic credibility of names like Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been dead and in the tomb for four days. And that's important. First, rabbinic literature explains a popular Jewish belief that may have been circulating at that time in the first century, which said that after death, a soul floated outside of the body of a person really eager to re-enter the body but it gave up and left after three days when it saw that decomposition was progressing. According to this view, being dead for four days meant that the spirit was gone. Gone. You were dead. Dead, dead. No hope of recovery. Now, that's not a biblical view. You're not going to find that taught in Scripture. It was a Jewish superstition, but it is interesting They mourned because Lazarus was really, really dead. Second, four days are important because Lazarus' body had begun to decay. Upon death, enzymes and bacteria start to break down the body, producing toxins and gases that decompose tissue and swell the body, hence embalming. Embalming chemicals Uh, kill the bacteria, and stop the enzymes, consequently slowing decomposition. So refrigeration also slows decomposition. So today, in funeral homes, they utilize both of these techniques. They embalm corpses to slow decomposition, disinfect the body for safety purposes, and make corpses presentable for public viewing. Well, in the first century, they did not embalm, and they did not use refrigeration, of bodies. So if you drop down to verse 39, it was expected that Lazarus's body in the tomb was rotting and was therefore producing significant stench over the course of 4 days. Lazarus was dead. He would not recover. 
He would not come back. He would not be resuscitated. He was dead. Verse 19 affirms that many Jews made the trip, about 1.7 miles, hiked from Jerusalem to Bethany to console Martha and Mary at the loss of their brother, which was customary in those days. The fact that many of the Jews had come may suggest that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were from a prominent Jewish family. Either way, there was a big crowd of mourners coming, which was not customary in the day. And Jesus walked back into enemy territory now, just close to Jerusalem, and back to a crowd. Well, in verse 20, someone alerted Martha that Jesus was on his way, and uh, so she left and went out to greet him on his way. However, her sister Mary just remained seated in the house, which is something that the Bible mentions twice, so maybe she liked to sit a lot. I'm not sure, but... So uh, that actually parallels Luke 10, where Martha, uh, you might remember this story, was flying around the house as a busybody, doing all kinds of work, and uh, just consumed with working. And there Mary was, who was sitting at Jesus' feet, per se, and, and listening to what Jesus was teaching. And Martha objected to this, so she said in Luke 10, 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Jesus, tell Mary to get off her butt and to help out a little bit. That's what she was struggling with. And this is how Jesus answered. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. When Jesus came to Bethany, Martha went out. To Jesus and Mary stayed put, but both of these sisters are mourning in their own way. Verse 21 Martha was very honest with Jesus Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She had hope in Jesus. It's unlikely that Martha was bitter. In this moment, it's, it's unlikely that she was incriminating. She loved Jesus. She was loved by Jesus, but she had just lost her brother. It was a sad moment, and she was grieving. And, and though grieving, she had confidence that Jesus could actually do something, that, that maybe he would display something. It's possible she was hinting at resurrection, but that's unlikely because if you jump to a verse 23, she seems to miss the deeper meaning of Jesus in what he was saying. And then down in verse 39, she seemed very skeptical and uh, cautious about opening Lazarus's tomb. Her brother was dead. And she looked to Jesus for comfort, for hope. Lazarus was not coming back. Martha didn't know what would happen, and I think that she hoped that Jesus would do something, something good. And then Martha heard the Lord say, your brother will rise again. That simple statement is layered with meaning. First, God promised a final resurrection. God promised a final resurrection. Martha responded, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Aha! Martha believed that there would be a resurrection, a final resurrection, something that the Old Testament taught and something that Jesus Christ himself taught. 
The Old Testament talks about life after death. And when it does that, it's implying that there will be a resurrection. Elijah and Elisha both raised a dead person, which foreshadows a final resurrection. This is really awesome. I think uh, some of the younger people uh, still with us here, this, this you might like. In 2 Kings 13, some men were, were burying a, a dead man's body, and they saw these outlaws coming. And so they're, they're getting a little bit nervous, and so they just tossed the guy's body into Elijah's tomb. And uh, when they tossed it in, the corpse actually touched the bones of Elisha the prophet, and the guy revived, and he stood up alive again. Just from touching the bones of God-appointed, a God-appointed uh, prophet. That's incredible. A foreshadowing of a final resurrection. Some Old Testament passages more obviously teach resurrection like Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. Or maybe Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. God promised a final resurrection and Martha believed God's promise. She looked to that very hopefully. But Jesus also taught resurrection. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Four times in John 6, Jesus talked about raising up on the last day. Jesus taught resurrection. I think Mary, or Martha, Mary and Martha, were both in tune with what Jesus was teaching. Martin Luther wrote this, Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. So not only has he communicated his resurrection in his sacred text, he communicates the resurrection through creation. So we know that Martha is on solid ground. She has solid doctrine. She believed in the Old Testament and she believed what Jesus taught. And there would be a final resurrection and her brother would actually raise again from the dead at that final resurrection. Now that applies to you as well. I want you to hear this. You are eternal. You are eternal. There will be a resurrection and you will either be raised to eternal life or raised to eternal judgment. Eternity is one breath away and then either everlasting pleasure or everlasting pain. And I think it was somewhat comforting to Martha to know that her brother would raise to everlasting life, to everlasting pleasure, because he knew Jesus, he loved Jesus, but she still grieved. When life doesn't make sense, my friends, Jesus is still the resurrection and the life. When life is completely out of control, when you are tired and weary, when battling sin seems such a pain over and over the same things, Jesus is still the resurrection and the life. Lazarus was dead, but Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. No one knew what was coming. 
As Martha was struggling to work through her brother's death, Jesus offered her practical and limitless hope in the truth. Yes, Lazarus would be raised again at the resurrection on the final day, but the resurrection was right there in front of her. Yes, Lazarus would live again after the resurrection on the last day, but the life was right there in front of her. This was the fifth I am statement of Jesus once again Jesus identified, going back now to Exodus 3.14, we've mentioned it in this sermon series before, where God uh, self-identified himself as I am, a claim of divinity. Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead, absolutely. He did it, but even more, he is the resurrection. He is the life. It would be one thing for James Harden, I don't know if this is going to hit, if you all are following NBA basketball, leading scorer in the NBA, it'd be one thing if James Harden said, I am the leading scorer in the NBA. He'd be right, he is. But it would be an entirely different thing for James Harden to say, I am basketball. That's different, man. You can't go there, especially if you consider Jordan, all right? Jesus meant that he is the essence of life. He is what it means to live. Paul said, to live is Christ. Imagine this, this early fall. And this is so appropriate for today. All right, so go to this happy place with me. (laughs) Uh, It's early fall, and you're walking in the countryside of Tuscany, Italy. It's uh, probably one of the most beautiful places on earth. All right, so we're just going to transport to Tuscany, Italy. It's warm. It's pleasant. You find this little restaurant uh, overlooking a stream in some vineyards and uh, cheerful fields of sunflowers. The sky is blue. The sunbeams flash as you sit at this little table beneath the shade of a grape arbor enjoying focaccia bread and tortellini, maybe spinach tortellini. Oh, stuffed. It's wonderful. And you're sipping a complimentary wine. It just fits perfectly with the meal. Your palate is going wild. The conversation with your friends is jovial and it's meaningful and it's deep and it's momentous. And and so you lean back in your chair and you think to yourself, now this is the life. This is living. Now, that would be pretty good, especially on a day like this. But, um, though a moment filled with pleasures and enjoyment and fullness and significance, that would be a wonderful moment. But here Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the fullness of life, the pleasure of life. Jesus awakens the dead soul to find enjoyment and contentment in the glory of God. To really live to the fullest is to live in Jesus Christ, to know him, to enjoy him, to savor him, the pleasure of his presence, to experience the fullness of and the weight of his glory, and to be united to him by grace through faith. You are most alive when you live to enjoy the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. You may have missed it. You are most alive 
when you live to enjoy the glory of God in Jesus Christ. What Jesus said in John 17, 3 defines this life. He said, and this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is life. The resurrection and the life Jesus talked about with Martha is knowing God. To relate to Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to enjoy His presence forever. When life is miserable and everything is stripped away, Jesus remains the resurrection and the life. If life was really all about earthly luxuries, then when everything is gone, life is gone. Think about that. If you trust in things that can be taken from you, what happens when they are taken from you? We're left there dead. We don't have any hope because what we love the most was taken away. But what if we are rooted in something that cannot be taken away? A joy that goes deeper than earthly realities. Folks, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. There's a war going on inside me to value Christ above the things of this earth. I get juiced up because it's worth getting juiced up about. I need this. Life is about Jesus Christ, the resurrection and life. And as long as He endures, the pleasures of abundant life endure. This life is momentary. The resurrection and the life is forever. Jesus is eternal life. This is why it is important to receive Jesus Christ as your hope and as your joy now. So you gain eternal life. John 1.4 says, In Him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus said in John 5.26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. In 1 John 1, 2, John wrote, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Think about that. God made eternal life visible in Christ. That's awesome. Later in his first letter, John said, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, very close and personal moment, he said, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You catching that? To really live, you must be in Jesus Christ, which means you are united to him by faith. Because he came back to life on his own authority, he gives life to everyone who is united to him by faith. Jesus being the resurrection and the life is not contingent on our lives making sense and being without struggle. Jesus remains the resurrection and the life regardless of how sorrowful our afflict or afflictive our lives become. Jesus told Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Belief in Christ is essential to live. To live. For life. Notice Jesus said, whoever believes in me or into me. It's the Greek preposition, ace, 
into or in. To believe in Jesus is to be united to Jesus by faith. To become at one with Him. To be in Him. It's more than agreeing with Jesus. It's more than having knowledge of what Jesus is all about. It's union with Jesus. It's oneness with Jesus. It's a complete movement of trust and confidence and love into Jesus Christ. Listen to this one study note. I thought it was really, really helpful. Quote, resurrection from the dead and genuine eternal life in fellowship with God are so closely tied to Jesus that they are embodied in Him and can be found only in relationship to Him. Therefore, believes in me implies personal trust in Christ. End of quote. So let's see what believing accomplishes. Those who trust in Jesus will live and never die. Live and never, ever die. Jesus didn't comfort Martha with platitudes or some religious cliches or some self-help guru tips with awesomeness tips that work in real life. Jesus didn't console Martha by offering to buy her a whiskey sour. He didn't offer her a drag from his cigarette. Jesus didn't say she should get away for a while. Didn't give her $1,000 to go on some shopping spree and to hit the health spa. Didn't even give her a copy of the latest best-selling book on the psychology of grief. grief. Jesus did one simple but profound thing to comfort Martha in her sorrow. He led her to the reality of resurrection and life in himself. He gave her hope in Him, found only in Him. John Piper said this, If you demand that God love you the way the world expects to be loved in this life, you won't know what it is to really be loved by God. The love of God is the gift of His glorious self. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. First, Jesus hangs it all on faith. You see it? He hangs it all on faith. Whoever believes in me, you have to trust him. Second, he reveals the inevitability of physical death, though he die. That's certain. We're going to die. There is an end to us. Everyone dies. Death will come for you. But when the believer dies, like in verse 25, third, Jesus added, yet shall he live. So there is life after death. Death will come, and when it does, faith in Christ ensures eternal life. Yet shall he live. Yet shall he live. In verse 25, refers to the eternal life and the endless joy in God that believers experience when they die. For believers, life is purposeful. It has meaning, and death then becomes the gateway to communion with God forever. Jesus said in verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me, which I think refers to believing in Jesus while being alive physically, therefore making you alive spiritually. Only those who trust in Christ while they live shall never die spiritually. The death Jesus mentioned in verse 26 is a spiritual death. 
And Jesus used a double negative to emphasize the never. If you live and believe in Christ, you absolutely will never, ever, 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 ever die. Spiritually, you will live forever with God. Everyone who lives and does not believe in Jesus will absolutely die spiritually. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Here's another way to say verses 25 and 26. Every believer who dies will live eternally with God in joyful communion with Him. And everyone who trusts in Christ before they die will never, ever, ever die spiritually. That's what Jesus believed would console Martha in probably one of the worst moments of her entire life. That's what he thought would be a good thing to say to build up her confidence in the moment of her intense grief. When life doesn't make sense for you, you need to trust what Jesus believes will comfort you the most. Verses 25 and 26 are the greatest comfort in life and death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and even when life is unbearable, it's only for a brief moment. And even as we face the cruelty of death, we are promised eternal life if we trust Jesus Christ now. Those who trust Christ will not die. Our comfort is John 3.16. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's hope. That is strength in tough times. That is strength in affliction. More than a tip. That's awesomeness, truth that works in real life. The Heidelberg Catechism is the historic and theological foundation of Jerusalem Church. This goes right back to our beginning, 1720 to 1727, somewhere in there. Uh, Conrad Templeman began our church here. And uh, Tim Nichols began our study on the Heidelberg this past Wednesday night, I thought did an effective job at quickly setting up what the Heidelberg is for us and And uh, the first question asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And that, that question, that assumes that there is only one comfort in life and death. There are not two, there are not three, there are not a lot of things to choose from. There is only one comfort in life and death. Martha needed that one comfort. The Heidelberg outlines that one exclusive comfort which beautifully mirrors verses 25 and 26. Let me read for you the Heidelberg. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. Has fully satisfied for all my sins. And delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by His Holy Spirit He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Folks, The Holy Spirit has to show up for me and make me want to will and live for Him or I'm done. Do you feel that way? I hope you do not look at your own life and say, I can do this on my own. 
I have enough self-determination to just make some good decisions and to battle this sin on my own. You're gonna, you're, you'll die in your sin. I need the Holy Spirit to show up and make me sincerely willing and ready to live for Jesus Christ. He has paid for that freedom for me in full. It's mine. I have it in Christ. I have the power to battle sin. I have the power to endure in affliction. Not because of Jonathan, but because of Christ. You have the power with Christ in you as you abide in Christ and have the Holy Spirit. Only one truth supersedes the pain of life and death, and that is this. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And everyone who trusts him will never die, but will live forever with unmatched joy and life in God. And Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you really believe this, Martha? The miracle hadn't happened yet. Did she believe the truth before she saw the incredible work of God? And let me ask you the question, do you really believe? What do you really believe? Do you believe what Jesus said? Martha was honest with Jesus, but I don't think she was resentful. In her loss, she looked to Christ. Her heart was with Christ in all her grief. Listen to what she uh, said to Jesus, the, the proclamation that sounds a little bit like Peter, a little bit like Nathaniel in early John. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Christ means Messiah. Christ means the anointed one of God. God would send a Messiah to come into the world to save his people, and Martha believed that Messiah was Jesus. The Son of God is a divine title. Martha believed Jesus was the Son of God. She believed it before Jesus brought her brother back to life. Her belief was independent of the blessing. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Her belief, her trust and confidence in Jesus was independent of the blessing she was about to receive. Moments away, we're almost there. What do you really believe? How do you make sense of the affliction of your life? There's not a person in here. Some of the young people here under the age of 16 sitting right there, they have affliction. You all have affliction. We all share this. How do we make sense of affliction? For Martha, it was probably pretty simple. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Her faith was imperfect, absolutely, like all of ours is, but it was there. She trusted what Jesus said. She took it as absolute truth. Her faith in Christ didn't bring her brother back. It didn't remove her grief, but it did give her confidence. It did give her hope in Christ. She had something more certain to cling to than the comforts of this life. She clung to Christ by faith. Now, why does John want you to hear about this? Why did he choose to write about this? John wanted his readers, including you and me, many years later after he wrote to his original audience, to believe what Martha believed. That's his purpose. Listen to how close Martha's confession is to John 20, verse 31, which we have come back to over and over again, the purpose of the book. But these are written, so that would include this account of Lazarus, Lazarus' death, was for this reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you see that? 
That's what Martha said. That's what she believed. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what Jesus taught Martha in John 11. If you believe in me, you'll have life in me and will never die. God doesn't unfold for us a detailed explanation of everything that ever happens in our life. Just laying it out. This is why I I have done this in your life. We don't know that. He doesn't show you how everything works together for your good in this moment. He allows there to be mystery, to be uncomfort in our lives, to say, can't make sense of this one. (laughs) But God still wants you to trust in him in the middle of the affliction. He wants you to value what Christ is for you more than you value life making sense. Life may not always make sense, but it doesn't have to because you can have sure hope in Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life. Isn't verses 25 and 26 exactly what you need to endure your trials, whatever God is taking you through? Doesn't the truth of Christ possess the power you need to endure until the end, to keep pressing ahead? Isn't this the key? He is the resurrection and the life. Now, you may never have watched the 1980s TV show, The A-Team. I'm not even saying you should go back and watch it, all right? But the leader of this dissident crew made up of uh, outcasts, really, from the military, ex-military soldiers, John Hannibal Smith. He was their leader with a big stogie hanging out of his mouth. And he used to say this, I love it when a plan comes together. Any of you remember that? I love it when a plan comes together. God loves when his sovereign plan comes together and it always does. He always accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. He's God. He's in control. It always will be accomplished and it always will be accomplished for his glory and for our greatest good in enjoying Him. That's a promise God makes. Our only hope is this, my friends, that when life doesn't make sense, Jesus always has a plan. There is always something happening behind the scenes, perhaps that we cannot see, and His plan, you got to believe this, His plan is always good. Always good. Let's pray. Father, You are so good to us. We love you, and we turn to you, turn to your son in faith, asking that you would help us to live for Christ. God, we're about ready to take the the Lord's Supper together, and this is a celebration because we come knowing the weight of our sin, and we come knowing how awesome Jesus is and what he's done to make us his. We are his. And so we celebrate him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.